The Unlikely Innovators with Mike Comito and Steve Gravel. Presented by Cambrian R&D and the Center for Smart Mining. Hello, everyone, and welcome to year two of The Unlikely Innovators. Mike, oh. I'm, I'm joined as always by Mike Comito. Uh, I say year two just because we've changed the calendar over now. We're in 2022 of, uh, of The Unlikely Innovators campaign. The campaign, I like that instead of seasons, just an ongoing campaign until we're we're politely asked to stop yeah. or or until it becomes our full-time jobs. Yeah, it's like a Don Rickles <laughs> thing, right? He used to have this thing, uh, as a friend, it's over. You know, like we've uh, we've heard enough from you. Thank you. Yeah. We haven't been asked to get off the airwaves yet. And uh, I think I just envision you and I in a bunker somewhere trying to record the latest episode <laughs> as people try and uh, remove our faces from the mics. But uh, nonetheless, we're still around. Indeed, we are, and we had a great guest this week. Uh, maybe you, maybe you want to tee this one up because I think you, you know, you were the one that uh, we don't get into like how we get our guests to come on the show, but obviously, uh, it's through I think the professional networks that we've built and you know some of the past uh, experiences we've had with these folks. But you were you were able to get Emma Jarrett uh, from Electric Autonomy Canada. She's the managing editor there uh, to come on. How did all that come about, and and what did you make uh, of, of Emma's chat today? Well, I mean, in tossing it over me to tee it up, you actually teed it up quite nicely, Mike. And but, I didn't uh, plan on doing that. I, I guess, you know, sometimes you just got to be confident and not try to tee it off to somebody yeah, else. Yeah, you just go it. for it. You just go for it. No, but well, I met Emma um, uh, when we were doing a couple of features. Uh, Electric Autonomy Canada was doing a couple of features of the, uh, the battery electric vehicle uh, maintenance training that we're doing with McLean Engineering. So we met first uh, professionally when I was an interview subject of hers and then uh, I continued to sort of follow their video series they've been doing on different elements of the Canadian uh, EV context and uh, quickly uh, obviously became clear to me that she's uh, developing into quite a thought leader when it comes to EVs. And I think uh, the sort of lens she takes from an investigative journalist perspective, I think, uh, really shines through in the work that they're doing, uh, supporting uh, that knowledge sharing she was talking about at at the platform. So uh, it was super uh uh, exciting to have her on to be able to get, offer some of those uh, those tidbits about the EV space in Canada. But I thought, wow, even more interesting to hear, uh, you know, about her journey so far and, and all of her journalism background, because I think uh, it once again shows that uh, people who uh, enter sort of the innovation ecosystem, ecosystem come from a lot of different areas and have mm -hmm. a lot to contribute from a lot of different disciplines. So that's what I took from it. Yeah, no, it was, uh, I think she certainly fit the mold, not necessarily an unlikely innovator, because I think you always, you always see that there Maybe an unlikely engineer is probably what uh, she would yeah, have termed yeah. herself as again, as, as I would term myself as an unlikely engineer. Again, you need those math skills to become an engineer, but I think, I think everything worked out for Emma. So let's just go right to that conversation here from her, uh, herself. Emma is an investigative journalist in Toronto. She holds a Master of Journalism from Ryerson University and a Bachelor of Arts from Carleton University. Emma is the Managing Editor of Electric Autonomy Canada, where she oversees the editorial body of content from the outlet and often herself reports on industry news. Emma is an accredited member of the Automobile Journalist Association of Canada, uh, was previously an associate producer for W5, which I'm just geeking out about right now and freelance for CTV, the Toronto Star, the Globe and Mail, the Barron's Observer, and Vice in print and in broadcast. Um, she's reported from eight countries and lived abroad in Switzerland, the UK, and Norway, 
And we're super jacked to have you on today, Emma. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here too. Awesome. Uh, so that was your professional bio. Uh, now we're going to ask you a question and let you sort of take liberties of, you know, how the heck did you get here? Uh, did you always want to get into journalism? How did that journey sort of make its way to present day? <laughs> um, well, I started out wanting to be an engineer. My dad is an engineer. And I stuck to that dream for a really long time until I realized that for the um, sake of public safety and anyone who wants to cross a bridge um, and make to their side, I probably should not go into engineering. My math <laughs> is um, shaky at best. So um, I actually had an amazing English teacher in high school and that was when I realized like, oh, I like this and um, I'm okay at it. <laughs> and um, I would like to pursue this further. And that led me um, quickly to journalism where I uh, just started working as much as I could to, to practice writing and doing anything from, you know, writing blogs for a clothing store I was working at about, you know, fashion and and you know trends that were being seen to uh, freelancing for my campus newspaper and just trying to build up a portfolio. That's awesome. Actually, it's it's funny because I'm not I'm not a journalist by any means, but I do I do like to write stories from time to time. And I remember like when I first because I didn't have you know my, I went into history and like the encouragement I got from high school is that at my guidance counselors that you can only go into becoming a teacher or a librarian, there was nothing else you could do with a history degree. So I was never encouraged to, to practice my writing at that level. I figured it out much later and got into the into hustle mode where you were blogging for yourself. And I remember one of the companies that I, uh, I used to like to buy clothes from because they kind of were in the in the hockey world. Uh, I noticed that they had, you know, some uh, historical memorabilia when they sent out their their packages. And I just said, Do you want any? Uh, would you want to develop stories for your blog on your website? And, uh, and, you know, you send out those feelers and you never know if you're going to get a response back. And they said yes. And, you know, you never know. I think that's just always a, uh, one of the interesting things, right, is that you, you have to ask because you never know where those opportunities may lay and, and they may lead to all sorts of other cool things, which I'm sure we'll talk about, which is, um, you know, speaking of opportunities, obviously, you, you talked about, I think, getting into investigative journalism, or we're going to talk about that later. But, but right now, with your role at Electric uh, Autonomy, you know, you're, you're focused on automotive journalism. Can you talk about you know, how you got into that? Was it a particular story you had worked on that kind of piqued your interest? Or was it just a matter of, uh, of opportunities and circumstances kind of uh, presenting themselves? Um, it was probably the most unexpected uh, turn I could have imagined um, that I, I mean, I had always sort of heard these, these professional urban legends of, you know, oh, someone picked up my profile on LinkedIn and then now I'm the CEO of some crazy company. <laughs> Um, so I was on my second maternity leave and, um, I was not actively looking for something to do, but like with my first maternity leave, um, you know, I wanted just something else to fill all those hours when they're napping. That's not baby. <laughs> so I, uh, I got a message one day from this person I'd never heard of on LinkedIn, uh, Nino Dakara. He was saying, you know, in his message, well, I've, I've started this news platform and I see that you worked in Norway and you're a journalist and I'm, I'm looking to get some, some Norwegian data and, and could you help me do that? And I almost didn't answer. I thought it was like a scam. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then I did though. And 
we started, you know, doing a little research together and I found out more about what it was he was done. I mean, as soon as somebody says, and you know, what year was that? 2019, I think, um, you know, I've started a, a media platform. I sort of, my ears perk up because that's not really what's happening these days. The opposite yeah. is, is <laughs> happening. Um, and I just, it was kind of, it was like what you said, um, you know, segueing into this, you're always in hustle mode in journalism, I think, um, especially nowadays. And I just said, look, um, we finished up this, this little research um, project we had, but do you need other help? Um, I'm happy to write. And that started off um, a really good freelance relationship where um, I was learning a ton about an industry that I kind of peripherally been on the edges of um, more on the side of sustainability and, and, you know, clean energy and that sort of thing. Cars were and vehicles were very new to me. Um, and I hope, I think that they liked what I was producing <laughs> and, uh, and it led to eventually where I am now. Um, just, we built up to it. <laughs> Well, and you couldn't have teed that up any better, uh, Emma, because what I was going to ask you about is uh, the work at Electric Autonomy Canada, because I initially got introduced to the to that platform um, because of the work we're doing at the Center for Smart Mining around, you know, underground electrification and, and e-mobility generally. Um, but then I actually uh, sort of met you without you knowing I met you um, when you started hosting some of those video panels that you had on the site. Could you talk a bit more about, uh, you know, sort of what Electric uh, Autonomy Canada is doing and, and where it's going and, and what's cool about it? Definitely. Um, so I'm very bad at the the sales pitch of, of who we are and what we do. I leave that to our fearless leader. Um, but in a nutshell, Electric Autonomy is a business to business news platform. We are heavily industry focused and our our mandate is to bring awareness, education, resources, um, any information we can to anybody who's interested and make those connections so that uh, companies that are looking to transition professionals that are that are thinking about it for their place of work um, have that that knowledge base that they know they can really depend on. Um, you know we pride ourselves in very solid reporting, very um, authoritative about, what we're talking about, we never publish a story without being 100% sure that it's right. And yeah, I mean, it's it's been incredible. This is a, a ridiculously fast moving space. Um, every day you wake up and you just like don't know what's going to happen next with it. It's uh, and it spans what I really like about it and what I underestimated at first is that it spans um, everything. You know, you you say electric vehicles and you think, oh, you're only talking about, you know, the cars in people's driveways mm -hmm. or sitting in traffic, but you're not, you're talking about, you know, the grid, the economy. Then we go into what other types of vehicles they are, which, you know, led me to meeting you and mining. And once you realize that this isn't just about electric vehicles, this is about a whole new way of living and being, um, then it's just mind blowing. Like I, I feel so lucky to be um, on the front lines of this. Well, and I think it's interesting too, how uh, I think you mentioned 2019, the platform started um, and really shaping that authoritative voice. Like I, uh, that's a very short amount of time to, to do that well. And I think Electric Autonomy Canada 
has done that well because it's it's so often when you want to know what's sort of what's next and what's happening especially in the canadian context in that whole chain you're talking about yeah i don't think twice about where i'm going and I, this is not a pitch like for electric autonomy canada it's just it's one of those things where uh you know, news organizations have to spend decades building up reputation, but it seems that you have to be as quick moving as the industry in order to to get to that thought leadership voice. And I think you guys place and I think you guys have done that. No, well, thank you. Yeah, no, we I mean it's really nice to hear and and certainly something that we it it's a a touchstone for the for the whole team that we always go back to, you know, how is this going to help move the needle on electrification? Um, a more sustainable way of living. Um, I think it's something that all of us feel very deeply about. We're all motivated for our own reasons why, but it's it's a really nice thing to have that um, that philosophy, I guess, guiding the workplace. And especially especially now, um, you know, with everyone being separated by by COVID, and you know, a few of my team members I either haven't seen in years. Or have actually never met in person at all because they got hired during the pandemic. So, for us, for me at least, it's been like critical to have that really, really core philosophy to to guide our work, and and hopefully it comes through. Yeah, yeah, I think it definitely it definitely has. Emma, one of the things I wanted to ask you because obviously we were lining you up on this podcast before you had some good news, but there was some news I came across recently before we were uh, booking you in that you were recently accepted to the Automobile Journalists Association of Canada to represent Electric Autonomy Canada. Can you talk about you know what that means for you and what that means for the organization moving forward? <laughs> sure. Um, I got that news right at the start of this year, so that was a nice thing to come back um, mm-hmm. from Christmas and. Uh, yeah, it's it's great to be a part of the organization. I mean, they're a legacy uh, institution for bringing together um, automotive journalists, and um, I never I never thought I'd be a part of it, but I'm really glad that I am. Um, and for the for us for electric autonomy, it's nice to have that um, again that feeling of membership to to a core group of of informers of this community um you know everyone ever all of the members have have their niche that they are um, very involved in um and i think we are much less on the like reviewing of cars side like i don't know what I would do if you put me in a Tesla. The technology just confounds me. I, it would be the most boring car review ever. But what I can bring to the table is a perspective on, um, you know, how electric vehicles fit into the transportation landscape, and talk about, you know, sort of stretch the boundaries of what's considered automotive by drifting into well, if if you know we all have EVs, then that impacts our grid. And I feel like that stretches out. Um, the information base for the AJAC a little bit, um, and and hopefully they think it brings some value to their organization, and it's something that they want to continue um, with us down the line. Steve's going to groan uh, when I bring this up, but I just want to try to put this in the proper context. So I'm going to take a stab at this, and I might be wrong, but I think of you know joining that organization would that be comparable? I think of the writing that I do with hockey. Professional Hockey Writers Association, would that be like the pinnacle of, of the automotive journalism you're doing is joining the AJAC? Uh, I guess so. I, I don't 
I never, I don't think I've actually seen a comparable to the AJAC in terms of um, any other groups that are that are gathering together um, membership solely from the transportation sector. So mm-hmm. I guess it would be somewhat comparable to that. <laughs> let's let, let's go with that. We'll we'll go with that yeah, yeah. And, and we'll get corrected later. So perhaps I'll give you a shoehorn, <laughs> Mike, if you want to uh, if you want to shoehorn the uh, the, the hockey writers. Uh... Yeah. association <laughs> no but i think it's important um because i think some publications especially you're quite right when when you're talking about technically uh like on the review side it's important i think especially with a relatively nascent industry like you know electric vehicles to still keep that bird's eye view i said when we were before we started recording you have an interesting perch um because you know when you look at evs it's it's the whole value chain and i think it, it's so much it's a it's a treasure trove to write about rather than just you know particular vehicles or particular class of vehicles so you have uh you have much more of a uh, of a field to mine right yes so to speak a mining joke emma jarrett with a mining joke that's excellent <laughs> um, no it's true and and i think that the more you start pulling at the thread of of it, the more you discover. Um, you know, I, I certainly never would have connected when I first started out that one day I would be, you know, studying for a week, trying to understand the ins and outs of, of the mining world. And, and not only that, but the refining process, because that's really important to EVs. And, and you know, you could, I could easily spend all my working hours just researching, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but it's uh, it's great, and it connects you with so many people. Um, the one thing I have noticed with with this industry in particular, the people who are at this point deeply invested in it or or thinking in this way about our electrified future is everyone's so nice. I have yet to have a um, like unhappy interview where you can tell the person doesn't want to talk or they don't. Um, they just don't like what you're doing. They feel, you know, cornered by a journalist. Everyone is so open and so willing to give their time and their insight and their expertise and always help you out um, in any way you need. And, and I love that that's the culture that that this new world is being built on. Um, I'm really enjoying that. I hope it lasts. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's a bit of a contrast to some legacy industries you know, where you think of like super tight-lipped, button-down, uh, non-collaborative I think what we're seeing in EV is 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 not that, and I think uh, I hope to see that more. Now you get you said it, uh, you know that the people are really nice, and I know that you've been able to rub shoulders and interview and interact with a lot of really key people in the in in the EV space. Uh, is there anything you know from a highlight reel perspective as you're playing it back in your mind uh, that you see as like some of the most impactful impactful opportunities that you see? coming down the pipe in the Canadian market? Uh, any EV trends that uh, that stick out to you? I think that what we're going to see over the next few years, certainly what I hope we see is just a very steady, deliberate build toward um, adoption and particularly infrastructure that makes sense. Um, I feel like in the early days of of any sort of big transformative movement there's a bit of like um panic spree that goes on with everyone just trying to to jump on the bandwagon without 
carefully thinking out, I'm making an investment today that I want to see last until, you know, 2050 or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I think there may have been in the very early days of, of electrification, those sorts of impulse um, purchases for infrastructure that we're seeing now are having a, a tough time proving they're, they're still relevant in today's space. Cars have advanced, all vehicles have advanced so much when they're being ele- electrified because of the charging speeds. That's where you know you see the biggest acceleration in terms of of uh technology that's that's putting a strain on infrastructure so i would like to see some really good networks built out um i would really appreciate seeing more of a push to get electrification into the more remote parts of canada i think that it concerns me that there's a divide appearing already between the haves and haves nots. And I know it's a complicated issue and I don't pretend to be the the person in the room who can solve that, but it would be great if somebody could crack that nut, um, figuring out how to not make electrification, you know, a trend that happens right along the 49th parallel, but something that happens for everybody. For sure. And I think it'd be the ultimate failing if these new mining vehicles in remote mine sites are all electrified and connected vehicles, and then we're still driving gas and diesel vehicles in the communities from which those mines originate, right? That would be the ultimate irony that would be not good. It's not a great look. (laughs) (laughs) Well, MF, if I could switch gears, which again is the first time I think I've been able to use that turn of phrase on this podcast and it's actually relevant, but uh, you know, you'd, you'd mentioned your time abroad in Norway and that's one of the things that, you know, immediately popped up to Steve and I, when we were reviewing your bio, Um, we obviously know that it was a kind of a stepping stone for the, you know, the opportunity you currently have now, but I'm curious just to kind of know more about what that experience was like and and what you took away from your time, you know, living abroad in Norway. Yeah. I mean, it was pretty wonderful Um, at the time. I never would have imagined it would have led me here, but uh, I'm very glad it did. And it came about because uh, when I was at, um, I mean, at the time it was called Ryerson. I'm not sure I'm allowed to call it Ryerson anymore. I think they're calling themselves X University now. Um, Anyway, when I was doing my master's, Mm -hmm. um, I won a national award that sent two journalism students to Norway. And it was uh, through the embassy, like the, the Norwegian embassy in Canada, um, they, they sponsored this award. Um, I'd never thought about going to Norway before, um, didn't know anything about the place that I was sent to, which was a small town way up north called Kirkenes. And I ended up there with this incredible, determined team that had set up its own news platform. So it was like foreshadowing for my later life. <laughs> and uh, it was the best experience um, to have fresh out of university because on those small teams, as we know, you know, you do everything. Uh, everyone has to just dive in and try their best and they may not know how to do three quarters of the things they're being asked, but you have to figure it out. So I got a uh, initially a two month crash course in being a reporter in a place that you're just being parachuted into and um, swimming, not sinking. And then I got to go back for a second uh, 
placement there a few months later. And that just solidified, um, you know, my feelings of deep regret that I, <laughs> I don't have a stronger reason to go back there now in terms of, you know, dual citizenship. I did look into it. I love Norway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and uh, one thing I did notice though, uh, particularly the second time I was there was you could start to see the electric car creep happening. Um, I did end up in Oslo for a few days. I spent most of my time up way up north, but there were a few days in Oslo and immediately I was like, wow, there are a lot of Teslas here. And you could just see though that it was coming, the second time I went back, it was coming up north. Um, in the few months that I'd been away, they'd gotten an EV charger in the uh, community I was in and everyone was, was preparing for this, um, this wave that was coming. And now, I mean, we look at Norway's adoption rates and I was there, what, six years ago-ish? Um, what's What they've done in six years is incredible. It's, mm -hmm. there's no comparable in the industry <laughs> for how they've managed to transition. Something and, to live up to perhaps. And how, how long were you there for? And at what time of the year um, were you spending your time there? I'm just curious about like, you hear, uh, you know, about like the, the darkness in the winter, but then in the summer, like the light all day, like, did you get to experience those phenomenons while you were there? Good questions. Yes, I got both. <laughs> nice. um, the first time I went was in the uh, late spring, summer. So it was sunshine all the time. And it was one of those things where like, I never felt tired. I think I slept probably seven hours the entire two months I was there just because oh it's always daylight. Like, I don't know, my melatonin never kicked in. It was just like, I wanted to do everything and go everywhere. And so that was great. And I did this, um, I, the, so I was actually there the, the first night that the sun never sets, which, um, it's kind of like a special, it's not a holiday or anything. It's just like a special day people like to celebrate. Um, and I went camping that non-dark night and, <laughs> and, you know, sort of just watched the whole thing. Sun never goes down and, and it was very cool. And then when I went back uh, a few months later, it was late fall. And I was there for the first night or the first day rather where the sun never, never came up. And that was really neat on a whole different level because um, like all dark is hard, definitely. Yeah. Um, and it's not like pitch black dark. You get this, this really beautiful actually blue light um, for a couple hours during the day. Like everything just goes this like pretty royal blue color. Um, but you all, you get Northern lights and it was just the best. Like I could have sat there forever watching them. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would love to experience that. Like the farthest, uh, I haven't really got that far north, but I remember um, I lived in Thunder Bay for a few mm -hmm. years when I was younger. And when I went back for work, um, you know, maybe five, six years ago in the summertime, it was, it was fun because it was still light out at 10 o'clock, right? Which was a big deal coming from Sudbury where the sun usually sets around nine. So, I mean, not anywhere near the level that you experienced, but certainly I think that's, uh, it's on my bucket list for sure. No, the yeah, Scandin Scandinavia seems to just have it figured out, eh? I, I, I just, uh, you know, whether it's technology adoption or, um, I noticed that you spoke of both of those phenomenons so positively, and that's a very Scandinavian thing <laughs> to do um, also, is just to get the most out of both of those phenomenon. So um, I hope to go there one day. My wife's Finnish, her family's from Finland, and uh, 
to hear them talk about that it's like so what you know it's so it's dark all the time or it's light all the time i think uh sometimes canadians can be a bit temperamental with uh <laughs> things like the weather and daylight savings time so uh try to go where it actually matters for once you know yeah no it's uh you should definitely take advantage of of her roots and and go and visit um actually in finland i got introduced to my first and i didn't really know what it was when i saw it i know now um, but it's a microgrid and that was really interesting yeah it was a community that that had made its own little wood burning um geothermal microgrid and um it was right near where um nokia is the town i think it's aulu or olu yeah. where, where nokia is um yeah so that's very cool like yeah, that. and I think that's that's a really interesting uh, and instructive thing too, because they have a lot of like uh, more localized control of like timber and, and community-based forestry and community energy. Uh, it's something that I think we could look at adopting more here, just to tie it back to sort of the more that holistic view of EVs. Um, if we have more microgrids, people have more agency to adopt uh, things like uh, EV charging. So I think we could learn a lot from Scandinavia if we just took the time to look uh, a bit more often. Um, one thing in your bio that I just like, it sort of leapt off the page because there was a constant soundtrack in my household growing up of W5 in the background uh, after we would eat dinner. I forget what time it was on, but uh, it was in the evenings anyways. And, uh, you know, it's either Lloyd Robertson or Sandy Ronaldo or Tom Clark. Uh, like the, the, the sort of authoritative uh, news voice in the background when W5 uh, came on, uh, you had the privilege uh, of working there. And I was just wondering if you have any, I'm not going to ask for like stories or anything like that, because that's a bit fanboyish, but just talk a bit about the experience, uh, you know, working on a show like that. That's uh, maybe I'm overselling it, but I thought it was a bit iconic in the Canadian context to have that investigative journalism show. Definitely. I mean, I was probably the most intimidated I've been walking into a new job going into W5 because you feel the weight of that mantle of like, we're a legacy um, program and you want to live up to that. <laughs> it was um, really interesting. The, the sense of responsibility that comes with sending emails to people, hi, I'm I'm a journalist with W5 and, and the responses you would get um, ranging from, you know, someone's going, wow, like I'd love to be on W5. I grew up with this show. Um, I'd love to talk to you too. You know, if you're going for a more official comment, the trepidation, it's like, <laughs> why are you knocking on our door? What do you want? What, you know, calamity is going to be unleashed on us? Um, no, it was, it was an amazing experience. Um, definitely working in television is something I learned about myself that I think more in words than I do in pictures. So TV is always more challenging for me. But uh, on W5, you get to marry um, writing and TV because you're obviously writing and scripting the shows. So for me personally, I think it just helped advance my skill set and, and the stories that we put out. I was only there for a bit over a year, I believe. I went on my first mat leave um, after that, and then uh, just wasn't able to return because, you know, kids and mm -hmm. commuting. I live pretty far away from the studios. <laughs> but um, the stories that that I was part of, I was really proud of. And I think the one that sticks out to me the most was uh, we did 
a story on the uh, downtown east side in Vancouver's opioid crisis. Mm. And it was right at, I mean, not peak compared to what's happening there today, but at the time it was peak um, in overdoses and, you know, really not a good scene. And it was not being um, dealt with at a high level that was really doing anything. And we ended up uh, deciding to do sort of two days in the life of the first responders that are just being so burnt out at the time, uh, responding to all these calls. And then the outcome of that story, we, we, we did the, the frontline part of it and then looked to solutions. And I think that's what's great about a platform like W5. It's, it's solution-oriented journalism. We always like to be able to point to, you know, who's doing this right better, what interesting troubleshooting is happening. And stumbled across um, some clinics that were doing uh, methadone and suboxone um, therapy for for people to substitute out their their drug supply and I, I learned a lot about about how important it is to um, make drug supply safe and what a difference it can make and it actually took me back to um, my first living abroad and experience in Switzerland because the origins of those those safe supply clinics started in Zurich because in the 90s Zurich was um, like the center of Europe's drug problem. And I had no idea, you know, I'd walked on, mm. on these streets and through these parks that I was reading about, they were saying, you know, they were impassable because of needles and, and you know, debris from, from, uh, from drugs. And it was a real awakening for me that, um, you know, A, I had been there and hadn't known it all. And then why didn't I know it all? How have they managed to address this problem so thoroughly and it was because uh, Switzerland adopted a legalization and safe supply program that totally turned around their, their situation and has improved a lot of people's lives, um, definitely destigmatizing um, drugs and, and addiction leads to more people seeking treatment if they wish to, and, and also uh, results in it being less of a in the shadows in the dead of night in the park kind of situation. So, I mean, it all kind of feeds into itself because now I'm in the position of, you know, looking to countries like Norway to see how they're doing transitions better. And, you know, knowing that it's not just in, in this industry that you want to emulate a place that's done it right. It's across the board. If, if you know, Switzerland could turn around their very serious, um, opioid crisis in a matter of a decade by making those high level policies that that are harm reduction based and and address it that way you know we can absolutely adopt best practices that are evolving now that we're seeing play out in places like Norway and around the world to have a very successful transition here and avoid um, some very bumpy bumpy areas on the road to, to full electrification here because we know that they exist those those uh, sand traps along the way what a hopeful and optimistic view because i think uh 
you know, we don't always need to reinvent the wheel. And I think uh, there's so many examples from countries that have that have done it better. If we just have the humility sometimes to to just uh, and and again the um, the courage to try things, you know, that uh, that didn't come from home. It doesn't always have to be a Canadian built solution in order to to make sense for us. So. Uh, thank you for sharing that. That's uh, I wasn't sure what story you're going to pick, but I'm <laughs> I'm I'm super pleased you chose that one because I think it definitely has a a hopeful outcome. You know, if they could turn around a an opioid crisis in ten years, then my gosh, we should be definitely looking at that as uh, as a blueprint. Yeah, and then you know, I mean, I'm sure that that I'm making a, a very shaky comparable by by mixing drugs and and cars, but. But the point being that, you know, as, as you both, as you and Mike were saying earlier, taking away those silos mm. for solutions and having everybody work collaboratively together um, just makes all the difference. And I think my feeling is that, that what we're doing right now, those of us that are involved in transitioning, either, you know, directly trying to help spread information or those um, just trying to find out how they can make it happen for their, for their bubble, um taking away those barriers and just having everybody communicate about their experiences the good and the bad um, is a critical part of it and i think that the tone that's being set now with collaboration cooperation um, will will be a benefit to us as we keep going for the next um however long it takes us to get there for sure well said, Emma. And I, you've been so generous with your time. So we, we, but before we let you go, we always like to ask our guests, you know, what they're doing when they're not, you know, embodying the the role that they come to the show with. And and obviously, we talked earlier about how, like, as a journalism, you're always in hustle mode, and we know that you know you have two little ones to care for. But when you're not doing those things, you know, what do you like to do to to unwind or kick back? Mm, me time. <laughs> Does it <laughs> exist? Yeah. <laughs> um. Well, I, I like to stay active. I think that's been a tough part of, of COVID for me is, you know, the closure of um, gyms and just feeling a little weird about like going on a hike and, you know, crossing paths with a whole bunch of people who are doing the same thing because we're all desperate to get out. Um, but in a normal, a normal year, um, I used to play competitive badminton and while I'm definitely not at my peak anymore, I do, I do still like to get out and play. And, uh, you know, I've taken my kids out a couple of times to show them and that's been fun. Um, I am a reader. I am enjoying rediscovering the classics of, of my youth now mm -hmm. that I'm reading them aloud to, to my kids. Um, Harry Potter is a particular favorite. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I fill my time with, with the regular life stuff. I mean, it's, it's kind of a hard question right now, because as you said, like I'm running after two little guys, but uh, they're at a fun age. They're two and four. Oh, yeah. So they're, they're at the peak of like discovering the world around them. So we do lots of, of fun um, exploration stuff around the neighborhood. It's, it's good. Thankfully, I don't have a dog to also pile onto that. I see people, <laughs> honestly, I saw someone the other day walking with their three children and a dog, and I just could not imagine. Yeah, they're probably still <laughs> they're probably still walking, Emma. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it was intense. I I like tipped my hat and was like, "You're 
braver than I am. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't, we have, uh, we have a five-year-old and uh, she'll be two in, in March and, and people have said, well, when are you guys going to get a pet? It's like, absolutely <laughs> not, not in, in, once they're old enough and they could, they could contribute, then perhaps I would consider, but we have a hard enough time uh, keeping things organized as is. We don't need more, more chaos in the mix. Cause that becomes your dog, Mike. Well, of course. Time. Yeah. yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> Mike's yeah. COVID puppy. Yeah, yeah that's, that's right. Um, well, I mean, again, thanks so much uh, for sharing some of your uh, time and thoughts with us. I'm sure we'll be talking uh, professionally again, as uh, you know, Mike and I continue to carry the mantle for EVs and mining and heavy industry. And I'm sure we'll have more uh, interactions that way, but uh, we really wanted to thank you for joining us today. And uh, if things go well in the next 10 years, perhaps we'll end up looking a lot more uh, like Norway than, uh, than we do now. So uh, thanks for joining us today, Emma. Exactly. Thanks so much. Really appreciate you guys having me on. Well, Steve, that was a great conversation with Emma. Um, any any p- final thoughts about about what Emma had to say about the work that she's doing at Electric Economy Canada? I had another question for you, but I don't want to uh, I don't want to dismiss uh, the guests too quickly. No, I just think that uh, she's quite right. Uh, there is a vast network of innovators around the world that are working on similar problems, and I think what she's identified as the sort of collegial and uh, collaborative nature of the Canadian ecosystem as it purports to. EVs is, is uh, super hopeful and, and hopefully we do more and more international sort of global collaborations and learning. And I think we'll be uh, just fine in the Canadian context. Yeah, no, I think there's a, there's a lot we could take uh, from around the globe, I think, to hopefully make this all come together. But the thing I wanted to ask you, because you're obviously geeking out about W5, um, and I recently read Peter Mansbridge's book, um, Off the Record. Were you also, like, were you a Peter Mansbridge uh, geek as well. Is this book on your radar? Uh, there's, a, there's an unlikely innovators component here that I'm going to get to, but before I do that, does that resonate with you or not, not in your uh, wheelhouse? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a bit of a Mount Rushmore of uh, W5 hosts. Um, I'm not going to at all stake a claim or, or try and, uh, and mention any of those uh, today. Uh, definitely a Peter Mansbridge fan. Uh, you and I actually got to see him in action Yes. And uh, that was super uh, impactful for me because uh, we saw him interviewing um, Edward Snowden, Edward Snowden at the uh, Ontario Educational uh, Higher Ed Summit a few years ago. And uh, to be able to interview someone, first of all, virtually, which is always a problem as we was ahead of the time, though, right? That was before virtual interviews became what yeah. they are now. Uh, all you all you have to do is be holed up in an embassy somewhere <laughs> yeah. to make it happen. No, but I thought uh, to appear, again, nothing conjured, uh, to appear authoritative in cybersecurity like Peter Mansbridge did, you know, and, 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 and engaging with the guests virtually while still making it seem like a fireside chat, mm-hmm. I thought was pretty remarkable. It was, uh, it was a great interview and, and good to see the old guy in action. Yeah. And I mean, I, I'm going to go on a limb and say that the majority of our listeners are Canadian, so I don't need to explain who Peter Mansbridge is. But if you don't know who Peter Mansbridge is, uh, you know, he was formerly the, the chief correspondent for the CBC. Um, you know, I can picture his voice in my mind just saying his name. And the reason I brought him up was because I, I crushed his book over the holidays because it was, it was fantastic. It was just a, a kind of reflection on his time and career at CBC. And one of the things that he said that I didn't I didn't I wasn't aware of this. And maybe, you know, diehard Peter Mansbridge fans are aware of this, but 
but I guess, you know, so he, he never completed, uh, you know, any, his schooling. I think he dropped out of high school. He didn't go on to any post-secondary and he was working as a baggage handler. And um, that day he had been called to, to read an announcement over the intercom at, at the airport. I think he was working in Winnipeg at the time. And he was discovered by somebody who said, wow, you've got a really great voice for radio. I'm looking for somebody to fill in some of these slots. And, and that's honestly how his career began is he was working, you know, at, I think it was a, a, initially a music show. And then he got onto like the news. And then from there, like climbed the, the corporate ladder and became, I think, one of the most recognizable you know, faces in the industry in Canada. No um, but again, an unlikely innovator, um, certainly in his own right. I think those are always the stories you love to hear about you know, how maybe a LinkedIn message leads you to an opportunity, but certainly I think getting discovered over the intercom at the airport, uh, you know, kind of takes the cake. So are you saying that's like, we're on the precipice of being discovered, <laughs> you and I? Uh, yeah, if, if that's what's going to, that's what will happen. Someone will be in an airport and, you know, their, <laughs> their AirPods will, will fail and then they'll start playing it through their phone, which will obviously annoy the people around them. But maybe <laughs> within that crowd of people, somebody will say like, can you tell me who you're listening to? Those two really have, they, they have it. They, they have something. Those guys, those two young uh, upstarts have something. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, for now, we're not going to quit our day jobs. No, but Peter Mansbridge, if you're listening to this, we'd love yeah, to yeah. have you on. <laughs> Call us up. The kids are ready. Yeah. 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 And uh, by the way, what a name. Mansbridge. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, it sounds like it's like something from uh, Anchorman, but it's his legit name. Is, uh, name. is your, is your nephew at the, has he watched Zootopia before? Uh, I don't think so. I think he's like stuck in uh, Paw Patrol jail. Okay. Well, when he gets to Zootopia, there's a character in that film called Peter Moosebridge and wow. it, it is voiced by Peter Mansbridge. Yeah. Right. Yep. I didn't know that. That's sweet. yeah. They sought him out for the role. It was actually a whole thing because CBC journalists can't appear uh, in films or TV, but you know, it's, I think it was a Pixar film. So again, yeah. There's always an whole new audience that you can, you can bring Peter Mansbridge to. Right. So anyway, anyway, I think we've said more than enough. I've, I've gushed, Mansbridge. I've gushed over Peter Mansbridge more than, more than I intended to, but, uh, yeah. but here we are. <laughs> anyway. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next week where we can promise much less uh, investigative journalism. <laughs> fanboy, I, 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 I won't, I won't promise any less Peter Mansbridge. You never know. That's true. You can't make that <laughs> promise. The unlikely innovators with Mike Comito and Steve Gravel. Presented by Cambrian R&D and the Center for Smart Mining.